Welcome back to this podcast series from the Utrechtland Academy. In this episode, I will talk to Associate Professor of Psychology Ron Deutsch. Ron is specialized in people's perception of other people's faces. His research can tell us why we judge someone trustworthy just by looking at the face, but keep a distance from someone with a different face. For about 10 years, he has looked for the answer to this and similar questions, but just recently, he left his tenure position in the university for a job in industry. Join me to figure out why. I'm Sally Fayez, and this is the voice of Utrecht Young Academy. Basically, people have, uh, uh, they read a lot of things from other people right so there are some things that you can see from other people's faces like usually when some when, you know for instance whether somebody is a, a male or female old or young uh, sometimes you can see a little bit of the race of other people uh, but there are also a lot of things that we cannot really see from faces but we try to infer them so basically we are trying to go beyond the information given um, people in general and they do so very quickly and very automatically so whenever they see a face they make all kinds of inferences about that person's uh, character for instance or sexual orientation or political orientation and so we know for instance people infer uh, character traits like trustworthiness or dominance or uh, comp- competence from faces and uh, we call this social perception and people use this information and we know this because we find a lot of correlations in the actual real world between people's faces and what happens to them in daily life. So, for instance, people who have a m- face that is being judged by other people as more competent are also more likely to win elections. Uh, those same people also have higher salaries and work at more successful companies. People who uh, attain higher military rank tend to have more square faces, which is something that is correlated with uh, dominance, at least correlated with inferences of dominance. People uh, who have an untrustworthy face, they are trusted less in trust games, like in economic games, then they are also more likely to be selected from the police uh, lineup. They then, in a courtroom, are also more likely to get harsher sentences and to be found guilty, even though uh, there might be less evidence for their their guilt. So what I have been working on the past couple of years is trying to understand um, what makes a face judged trustworthy or dominant or or competent or attractive or all these things. So what drives these uh, judgments? And this is especially important because we know by now that uh, these uh, these judgments are not necessarily accurate. So although people are very quick, they do so spontaneously uh, and they do so uh, even after 25 milliseconds of exposure to a face, they already have made their mind up and seeing the face for longer doesn't change their mind, it just makes them more sure about uh, their uh, judgment. But because this happens so automatically, so quickly, so spontaneously and has real-life consequences but is not necessarily accurate and uh, I think most people in my area of work would say uh, it's highly inaccurate. Because of this all, it's very important to understand how people do this and uh, to make sure that people don't do it, don't apply it in the wrong way. It's, it already dates back like 400 years. Is this science, or it's not really a science, it's, they call it, it's more an art of physiognomy, right? It dates back to 300, 400 years ago. 
Physiognomy was popular in the time of Charles Darwin, right? Darwin almost didn't get on the beagle. The captain wrote this in his diary because he lacked uh, the shape of a nose that would show enough character for him to be able to complete the whole voyage. Uh, so you can imagine this whole ridiculous art of physiognomy might have ended up preventing Darwin from going on the beagle and ever you know, come writing his book on evolution. Uh, this is a very popular thought that people can infer things from faces and you see so still in, in uh, you can you can just open a newspaper and on a weekly basis you will see one or another study that shows we can above chance predict somebody's sexual orientation from from a face or uh, and there's always there are problems with this uh, with this work uh, and so far the people that I know and respect in this part of science are not uh, convinced that there is any you know signal that the face is revealing except for maybe age and gender and even there people disagree Does informing people about this bias help them overcome the bias? So we don't know yet. I mean, we have just figured out the last couple of years what features do this and whether this is inaccurate or not. And actually, it's still a debate. It's controversial in our field whether you know, this accuracy question. There are people who say that you know what you read from faces that it actually tells you something about people. These these people date back, you know, way to these days back to phrenology, uh, and I I wouldn't trust it one bit. But you know, so I'm on the side of the other research who is saying, no, actually people are not accurate. They do it, and there are reasons why they do it, but they don't, you know, on any individual case, and even on on the population level, you're going to make too many mistakes to rely on this. But as a researcher, uh, don't you feel the urge to tell people who are subject to these biases that there must be more cautious at least? Well, it's what we do. I mean, one thing, for instance, the person I work with, my postdoc supervisor, Alex Todorov, he has written a book on it called Face Value, which is actually out just a couple of weeks ago. Great book. I can recommend everybody to read it. There's also a lot of my work uh, explained in it. Uh, that deals directly with this question. It's also aimed at informing the general public and take, you know, be aware of what ha what's happening. But the thing is that we actually don't know to what extent people can control these kind of urges that they have, these kind of first impressions, whether they can actually overcome it. And there's a lot of research being done on it. We also don't know what kind of training would help. So the assumption that just telling people that you do it, uh, these kind of, that you do have this kind of bias, that it will solve the bias, it, it's an assumption at this point. We don't know that whether that's the case. Uh, why did I get into this is actually... Um, um, the simplest answer is actually because my supervisors, when I uh, were working on these kinds of topics, right? So you just roll into this. Uh, I met my promoter years ago at the University of Amsterdam when I was doing my master thesis. Back then it was not a master's, but just a doctorandus uh, in social psychology. And uh, this was uh, Daniel Wigboldus, and he was very much interested in all kinds of ways to measure uh, prejudice. And I um, was very much interested in doing uh, work that uh, allowed me to use uh, technology in a way to, uh, to investigate psychology. And he is also very much interested in technology. So we ended up, you know, I ended up talking to him. Uh, he, you know, he inspired me a lot. 
in, in, in these topics. And so we started working on investigating prejudice in virtual reality. And uh, what we did there is we wanted to s see uh, whether uh, we could replicate some of these things that people, that researchers were finding in, in virtual reality. So for instance, could we see that people, when they encounter a virtual Moroccan, these are Dutch participants, when they encounter a virtual Moroccan at the virtual bus stop in really in VR, in an immersive virtual environment, do they respond differently to that uh, virtual person than when it would be a Dutch looking guy? And what we found is people maintain more distance to a Moroccan avatar, so more Moroccan virtual person than to a Dutch virtual person. Uh, and they sweat more uh, when they see the Moroccan and then when they see the Dutch and this is all correlated with each other. And we can predict this with some kind of test. Although I would no longer trust that conclusion because the sample size we use is way too small. This was this uh, this experiment should be repeated before we draw these kinds of conclusions with a much larger sample size in order to have any confidence in this uh, in this effect. But that's not the issue here. What's the uh, like uh, the, the 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 thing here was that we found this effect, which I do think we can rely on. That people in this case Dutch people participants uh, maintain more distance to a Moroccan than to a Dutch virtual person. And people ask me, well, how do you know? That people uh, see a Moroccan when they look at this uh, at this avatar, at, at this person's face, and it's actually it was a uh, um, face that was created by an artist, a friend of mine who was a 3D modeler, and he just created. I asked him, "Can you create a Moroccan face?" And he created a Moroccan face based on, I think, some uh, one Moroccan football player from our team. I think it was Boularouz from the Dutch uh, soccer team, and so he created this face. Uh, oh no, it was not a soccer player, it was actually a Dutch actor, a Moroccan Dutch actor that he used. I didn't actually know that participants would perceive that face as a Moroccan face, right? It's just what that specific artist thought a face looks like. It's just it, uh, a Moroccan face looks like. It was that artist's subjective experience of Moroccan faces. But we might not all agree on what a Moroccan face looks like. There are two ways to answer that question, and this became my PhD project, although it first it started out as a pilot to understand what a typical Moroccan face looks like to uncover that, but uh, in the end it, and it became my entire PhD project and it, in the end it became the work that I spent the past 10 years in uh, working on. So I never ended up doing whatever we intended to do in my PhD project. Uh, if you go back, so why did you chose for psychology if you were more interested in the technology? I actually started out studying artificial intelligence uh, before I, uh, I moved on to, to psychology. So I spent one year of doing artificial intelligence and the first year went really good, except for, if I remember correctly, the, the course Linear Algebra. <laughs> uh, and the reason why is I, I figured, I think now with hindsight I can say this, I'm just very lazy. And I had to uh, learn a lot, uh, you know, re really learn a lot more than I knew from high school uh, uh, algebra in order to completely get Linear Algebra. And I decided that... Uh, there was another course that I was uh, that I also found interesting from, from 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 artificial intelligence, which was cognitive psychology, and that came way easier to me. So I chose the path of least resistance, and uh, I switched to psychology. But I never lost track of my interest in technology. So I always, even during my PhD and after my PhD, I kept on collaborating with people from artificial intelligence. Two of the PhD projects that I supervised. Uh, there were also supervisors involved from uh, promoters involved, co-promoters involved from artificial intelligence. So I never let go on that, but I was lazy. I think I, you know I was 19 years old. I was lazy. After you finished your uh, studies at the master's level, why did you then continue with the PhD research in psychology again? Um, 
the the opportunity just presented itself. So for for, for me, I think that that I never really, uh, up to more recently, I think I never made a deliberate choice uh, in in going towards psychology. Um, uh, may, well, maybe when I switched from artificial intelligence to psychology, I did so. That was a deliberate choice. But then things went so smoothly that I never had to um, de decide again whether I would continue uh, this. You know, whenever there's hardship or something, then you can decide, well, maybe I should do something else, like what happened with artificial intelligence. One single course, uh, and I hate to admit this to a, to a physicist, but what, like linear algebra made me choose a different path. Uh, uh, by now, I've used, by the way, what I've learned from linear algebra and what I would have learned later a lot during my work, but that's neither here nor there for now. Um, but after that, everything went so well that I never had to uh, 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 change direction. So in Princeton University, this was a, a, a postdoc with Alexander Todorov, uh, uh, who then had a sabbatical in New York, and I lived in New York as well at that time. And uh, we would spend like whole days walking around in Central Park just talking about work. Work that ended up becoming experiments that uh, took years to uh, complete, but then in the end was just recently uh, published in, uh, in, in Nature Human Behavior, which uh, uh, is a new journal, but uh, it, it shows that I think that if you spend a lot of time uh, on these academic virtues, like uh, taking your time to think about things, to talk about things, to really think thi think things through, uh, really pays off. And uh, uh, that was uh, that was great. And after that, I got back to the Netherlands and I uh, went up the academic ranks and I experienced less and less of these kinds of days. Woke up. Fell out of bed, dragged a comb across my head Found the way downstairs and drank a cup And looking up, I noticed I was late Found my coat So you got the chance to stay at the university, you got a job, you got a tenure and that's something that's uh, for many young uh, researchers at this moment uh, who are in the same position you were 10 years ago, it's like a dream and you basically lived this dream. Is it right? On paper. Did you feel that you were living a dream life? Not often enough. Did you feel privileged? Yeah, I did, a lot. So what were your privileges? So my privileges were uh, that I am my own boss and I could do whatever I want that, uh, uh, that I thought was best or that um, uh, in my eyes facilitated the most the contribution I could make to our field. Uh, that's the privilege. Um, um, but I also turned out to be a horrible boss for myself. So although you can be your own boss, uh, the boss that I was uh, for myself was uh, one who, um, who who uh, how should I say this? Well, who who um, wanted me to do research, but uh, pressed me to do every th every short term de term deadline that there was, which means you know um, most of the time teaching. So you could avoid doing them, but you chose to do them, and then that kept you from research. Yeah, I could I could decide to spend less time teaching, 
so do the give the same courses give the same classes uh, um, uh, but with less effort so I have more time left um, to do research but I uh, was never able to to do anything uh, so you know I whenever I do something I want to do it well and uh with uh w- with both research and teaching i think if you want to do it well you need to spend a lot of time in it and i did not have enough time in my week to do both of them well enough for my taste um so and because the teaching was more pressing more urgent because there are always deadlines and there are a lot of students who are dependent on you it always took precedence over my research uh and that was that that was already you know uh, given that I had a lot less time to do research than teaching in my whole contract. So although it's a dream job, right? You can do you're an academic and you have a permanent contract. If you want to do it well, you, you know, and you have the amount of teaching, the teaching load that you have um, is let's say sixty percent or fifty percent of your of your contract, and then you want to do it well. Uh, in my case, this meant that I needed to. Uh, put more time in it than officially uh, you get for it uh, and this eats away research time um, so and the reason why you do that is because the, the deadlines of, of teaching are far more uh, pressing uh, and short term than the research uh, thing so I think in some ways I made uh, I could have made the decision to uh, lower the quality or at least the effort of my of my teaching why did you put so much effort in teaching? Because I feel an obligation to the students to uh, to to um, to deliver high quality teaching. Uh, that's what they what they are coming for to university. I wish we would have uh, smaller classes, uh, smaller seminars. I mean, we have between, f- I think. I don't know the actual numbers for this year, but between 400 and 700 or 800 students starting out each year. And in the second year, there are less because you have specialization. So I have in my class, for instance, in my second year social cognition class, I have between 150 and 200 students. These students get multiple choice exams and uh, you know they have to work in groups. While I think the quality of my teaching would be a lot higher if I would have, say, 25 students a classroom of 25 students and you could interact with each and every one of them but that's the system is not set up in a way where we can we cannot do this f- for uh, courses that have so many students there's just not enough money to pay all the teachers to give the students individual uh, interest but I still try to get as close as I can today, oh boy, 4, holes in Blackburn Lancashire So, Ron, you just explained the, the life of academic and you uh, lived this life more than 10 years uh, and eventually you are now leaving uh, academia to work in a company. So, what was the moment that you 
made a decision and how were you feeling at that moment? Um, well, first of all, it's a very tough decision because uh, there's so much, you know, I, as you said, there's you, I experienced so much privilege uh, when you do, when you work in academia. But um, I think, so one of the things is that um, I, okay, so the reason for my, for my decisions are, 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 are there are varying reasons and some of them date back from a, from a long time ago and others are just very recent. So uh, there's not just one moment where I made this decision. Uh, but uh, f so one of the things are my, um, my interest in technology and I actually always thought I would end up working at some kind of technology company. Uh, and I took a detour when I switched from artificial intelligence to psychology. And now slowly I'm getting, I was getting, you know, the realization, you know, when I looked at what I was doing and what I wanted to do, I was slowly realizing that this is the, um, that, that, that I wanted to work more uh, in areas of technology uh, than in uh, psychology more and more I realized this and um, so that's one thing and this is just something that was incremental over the years and then another thing is that more and more I spent uh, my days teaching instead of doing research and I uh, experienced less of these you know ideal days of an academic uh, the longer I was in, uh, in uh, I, the, the further I was in my academic ca career um, so that was an important uh, uh, part of my decision is that I, at some point I just looked back in the, during the summer holiday, what did I do the past year? And I thought well, I've been mainly teaching. And I got really frustrated at not being able to write the papers I wanted to write, to run the studies I wanted to run, or even to read the papers I wanted to read because I spent the last couple of years more reading abstracts than reading papers. You know, and uh, but the most important part of it was just that I, whenever I got to work, I didn't have the the feeling that you were talking about, like the ideal day of an academic. I didn't feel that anymore. I didn't feel the privilege anymore. I just felt like, okay, so I'm I'm a teacher now. Uh, one of the things that happened in the past couple of years is I don't. Our our field uh, of social psychology has uh, gone through a very a big crisis in the past couple of years and I didn't feel comfortable teaching what we thought before was like the core canon this is this is these are the facts that we know and that we can what was that crisis um so the crisis we talk about is the is is not not so much the uh the 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 crisis uh, of of fraud which uh which most people think about when we talk about this so it's not Diederik Stapel for instance who uh, f who made up his data um, but is the uh, replication crisis and a methodological crisis. So uh, it coincided with that, but we figured out in the past couple of years that the way we've do been doing research in the field um, has uh, made our literature uh, uh, riddled with what we call type 1 errors. A uh, different word for that is, I think, fairy tales. So these are... Um, uh, experiments that are have been reported to have a certain result uh, supporting some kind of hypothesis while actually the zero the null hypothesis is true so actually it's these are papers that 
show an effect while in reality in the population there is no effect the whole field is is like on quicksand right it's it's as if we don't know what is true and what is not true anymore well you know science should give you that and the reason um uh, uh why we don't know is because we've been uh sloppy when i was teaching my courses i was no longer sure that i could present this stuff as true or not you know and as a true scientist you can never say this is true this is not true you can always say this is how we think about this right now but i didn't know how we think about this right now because i didn't know what to trust in the literature and not trust in the literature anymore um and this goes for my teaching which uh, uh which by the way trend i i ended up uh using in my teaching because i i, I uh, people call this teach the controversy i i showed the book and i said you should treat this as a history book not as a book full of facts right and so this is the way we think the world works and we thought we had a lot of empirical support for it uh, we have less empirical support than we thought we still think that the work probably that the world might work this way but you know you have to treat it with caution as you should any scientific finding I was actually, you know, filling my courses now with information about this crisis and how to deal with it, how to interpret it. Um, but it also affected my uh, my research because, you know, if you write an introduction section of a paper, you cite all this work and you don't know whether you can trust that work or not. Not because um, uh, scientists were, you know, actually committing fraud, but just because you don't know what is a type one error or not because of the way the whole field has been doing research. It's very difficult to. Uh, to know uh, what you can build on. Uh, so when you go to Google Scholar, it says standing on the shoulder of the shoulders of giants, right? So when you uh, get to search anything, well, I, I don't know what giant shoulders I can stand on or not, right? So it, it, that makes it very difficult to uh, to do research and to teach. Um, and uh, it's played a role in my decision as well. A lot of of whether you succeed in science as it is right now depends on depends on luck, and uh, I I I think I have been lucky a lot, um, and um, I know it can it can it can um, appear to be false modesty or something like this, but I I really think that I've just been the right person at the right time to get as far as I got, uh, and uh, you know to be invited to be part of this like a 24 Utrecht Young Academy researchers who are the, the talent of the of the university I think that 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 sh that shows I, that I've been really lucky uh, but I think there are many people who have who who have at least or maybe even better capacities than I have and uh, and, and would probably be better academics than I am uh, who were not lucky and didn't get there and uh, part of why that's the case that's uh, is it's because uh, the system you know I happen to have a couple of publications when I uh, got my PhD I happened to get a Rubicon grant uh, when I was uh, um, when I was applying for postdocs so I could go uh, to other places but uh, you know that the, there's like luck is really a big factor in that uh, and I think that uh, I've seen a lot of people who work harder, who are smarter, 
who have really better skills, who have fled academia a lot sooner than I have or have not made it in academia. Um, and that's a shame because I think they could have contributed a lot. Uh, I mean, not, not everybody will peak in the first four years of of academia, but you can, you know, when you look, when you see what people can do, when you really look at them closely and look at what they can do closely, you could have seen that these people would have become, would have made important contributions in the future, uh, far more than me. Had you many conversations with your uh, former colleagues about uh, how do you feel now? Yeah, yeah, many, many. Yeah. What did they ask? Um, there were some. There's a group of people who really didn't understand that I made this uh, step. Really, that I w like one or two people at a conference that I went to just one week before I made the switch came to me and said, "Why? What? What's wrong with you?" And uh, one of these was uh, a guy said, "I'm a little bit mad at you." Um, but others completely understood it. Some thought it was brave, others thought it was stupid, but they understood it. And I also had a lot of people coming to me that said, you know, maybe uh, you're, you're making me doubt as well. Maybe I, we should make the switch as well. Uh, I had people come to me who said, well, I'm thinking about this already a long time, but I didn't dare to talk about people about it, but now I can talk to you about it because you're making the switch. And so it turns out there are many people in academia that don't want to be in academia. Um, but they think they can't do anything else and this is totally untrue because you know, most people I know in academia are extremely smart and skillful and for sure they can work at other places outside of academia. The question is whether they should want to, uh, but that's an individual question, you know, everybody has a different answer to that. <laughs> 